Good morning to you again. If you'll turn in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, we are going to be wrapping up a series. You'll see it says, uh, here has been the name of our sermon series in January, but because I had to, to move and push some things around, we are now into February, but we are concluding the series this morning. I want to begin by um, telling you that one of, the, one of the great joys, one of the crazy decisions that I made uh, a few months back uh, one, this was not a crazy decision. I maintain this was a great decision, which was to encourage our children's ministry to focus on catechizing our children over the course of uh, the end of last year and the start and middle of this year. And the second thing I did was decide that if I was going to throw a brand new program, I mean brand new, we, we have done it before, it's just been a while for a lot of our folks. If I was going to throw a brand new catechism program at our children's ministry teachers, that I was going to dig in myself, and so Marissa and I uh, have been teaching one of the um, classes, uh, first, second, third grade, um, and having a blast. Uh, it has been so much fun. It has not been crazy difficult because the curriculum puts all you need right in front of you. The children are full of energy and are excited to learn about the things of God. And what you find is that children, uh, the longer, I mean, if you work with them or if you have them at home, hello, um, that they're full of questions, and uh, in part, that's kind of what the catechism is based around, the idea that people have questions. More on that in a moment. I can recall when I was a child learning the Ten Commandments, which introduced its share of questions, that my parents diligently taught me what all those commandments meant, and I was clear on not just the words, but the meaning of all of them, except for one, the Seventh Commandment. When I would ask about it, adults would get really nervous and uncomfortable because I wanted to know what adultery meant. And one Sunday morning in church, our pastor asked rhetorically if anybody had a favorite among the Ten Commandments. I had a certain fondness for attempting to answer our pastor's rhetorical questions, so I shot my hand up. The pastor called on me and said, okay, Brian, what's your favorite commandment? Now, mind you, some of you already see where this is going. You're ahead of me. In my young mind, I thought, this is the moment of clarity. I'm going to cite the commandment I don't quite understand and that nobody will explain to me, and I bet you the pastor will. So I stood up and announced to the whole congregation that my favorite commandment was, Thou shalt not commit adultery. <laughs> it was then that my mother and father began to check and see whether the pew they were sitting in came with a trap door so that they could <laughs> sink into the floor. And once the congregation's laughter died down, the pastor said, David, Nikki, perhaps we need to spend some time together in my office after worship. <laughs> now, the very fact that I told that story from the pulpit means I should probably address the question that young me was asking. So, children, thou shalt not commit adultery means that God wants husbands and wives and moms and dads to love each other lots and lots, and he wants them to stay together and to stay committed to each other and to take care of each other and to keep all the promises they made to each other. And God hates it when husbands and wives break the promises they made to each other. That's what the commandment means. My point in telling you the story is to remind you of something you already know, that children are full of a lot of questions about important things in life. And indeed, adults are full of questions about important things in life. In our text this morning, Moses prepares uh, especially fathers, but broadly parents in Israel, 
to be ready for the questions that will most assuredly come from the lips of their children when they actually start to get to work obeying the commandments of God. So remember where we've been in Deuteronomy 6, okay? It, well, I mean, if we were to go as far back as Deuteronomy 5, you have basically the Ten Commandments that get rehearsed. And then in Deuteronomy 6, 4, you have this bedrock uh, confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, right? Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. Uh, then you have in verse 5 the command to love Yahweh. Then in verses 6 through 9, you have the command to, to teach these things to your children. What things? Chapter 5, 10 commandments. Okay, chapter 6, verse 4, what God said about himself. Verse 5, that we're to love him with our whole heart and mind and strength and so on. And then verses 6 through 9, teach these things to them. Display them everywhere in your home, Right? On, uh, on yourself, uh, on your arms as frontlets between your eyes. Talk about them in everyday conversation. Display them everywhere on your doorposts, on your city gates. Do this, why? That's verses 10 through 19. Lest your pride and arrogance and ingratitude set in in the land where you're going and you start to think we did all this. And now we come to verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? Remember the stuff we just talked about. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Yahweh showed us signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh, against all his household before our eyes. He brought us out from there that he might bring us in, give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear Yahweh our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God as he has commanded us. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And so we say, thanks be to God. So Deuteronomy chapter six gives Israel this bedrock fundamental call to obedience of God's ways and how to guard against uh, idolatry, unbelief, ingratitude in the land where they're going. And Moses assumes, assumes that questions are going to come out of this. Questions asked by the next generation. He says, your children will ask you, why do we do this stuff? Or more specifically, verse 20, what does this mean? So, so not just why do we do it, but what's the meaning of all of this? And so I want to talk to you this morning about questions and how God calls us to answer them. So we begin with this question in verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? There's the question. Imagine Joe Israelite living in the promised land, practicing his faith according to everything Moses has said. God has given us these commandments and we obey them. And when the nations around us do not obey them, our kids are going to notice kids are going to notice the contrast and they're going to ask why they're going to ask what does this mean so at least one of the things we see from this text the very first thing i think is that 
There should be questions as we practice our faith. Questions will come. We should expect that. Because I don't know if you know this, but this is true of Israel and this is true of Christians today in the New Covenant. Our faith is really weird and should provoke a lot of questions because it's weird. We obsess over ancient texts and what they mean. Very few other people do that. We get together and we sing about a God we love but cannot see. That's weird. Our worship services are really weird. There's been a lot of effort in the last 50 years to unweird them. I myself think we should keep them weird. They're supposed to be weird. We gather together to worship this God. We believe He forgives our sins. Get this. He forgives our sins because a first century Jewish carpenter died on a cross, came back from the dead, thereby punking death, mocking death, crushing death. And now, because a first century Jewish carpenter died and came back to life, we believe we're forgiven and we're going to live forever. Pretty weird. We believe that the Almighty and Eternal God draws near. And he puts that forgiveness on us with boring old water. And he puts his immortality in us and his forgiveness in us with a bit of stale bread and a cup of cheap wine. That's really weird. And we believe this God has put himself in us by his word and Holy Spirit and power. And by that same power and word and spirit, we're going to love each other regardless of all of our external worldly differences. And that by his words and that bit of water and that piece of bread and that bit of cheap wine, we're going to conquer the entire world. That's borderline insane. But it all has some meaning to it, doesn't it? It's not just symbols and words. We believe there's a lot of meaning and a lot of power here. We believe that the doctrine and theology God has given us is deep enough to puzzle the greatest of intellects for a thousand lifetimes. And so, if that is the God with whom we're dealing, it's going to provoke some questions. Faith in this God, and especially obedience to His ways, is always going to look strange to the natural man, strange to our flesh. So it will, so it should provoke questions from our neighbors, from our extended family, from our friends, and in this text, from our children. Look at verse 20 again. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? So let's talk a bit more about questions. What does the text tell us about questions? First of all, that they will come. God assumes they will come. Okay, and he assumes that the way we live our life is going to provoke these questions. These otherworldly ways of living are going to provoke questions. We also see this in the New Testament, by the way, not just for our children, but for all of our neighbors. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, a verse that you're probably familiar with. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, there it is, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Some translations, gentleness and reverence. Okay? So, alright, so we have to be ready. We should expect that the way we go about this 
Christianity thing, this Jesus thing, this following after God thing, loving Him and obeying His commandments in the world, at home, at work, at play, in the world, in the public square, and so on. It's going to look odd. There's going to be a contrast. And so what, is, what, what do I want you to take? What do I think you should take from, from the Deuteronomy text and the First Peter text? Again, I, I, I don't mean to hit you over the head with it, but questions are to be expected. Questions are good. I'm going to put it this way. Questions are blessed. Blessed is the one who asks questions when he has them about God and about faith and about Christianity and about our practice of it. If our children and our neighbors and our friends are asking questions, that means stuff is working like it's supposed to. So questions are not bad. Okay? There are times in, in the lives of some believers, I think maybe particularly young believers, but I could be wrong about that, uh, where they just have a sense that they're not allowed to ask questions because that's, that's, that's the absence of faith. No, no, the practice of the faith will provoke questions if it's working. If, it's, if, if we are living out this thing as we're called to. So we are not a people, dear saints. We are not a people who are afraid of questions. Amen? Let's try that again. We are not a people, dear saints, who are afraid of questions. Amen? Some of you, all right, some of you sounded really scared. In fact, every Sunday morning before service, Neil Barham is teaching from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Every Wednesday night, our children are learning this thing called the Children's Catechism. What's a catechism? It's the basic doctrines of the faith put into, oh, a, a question and answer format. Interesting. Why would we do that? We teach from a catechism that has a question and answer pattern in it. That's our template. That's our style. That's our gig. That's our thing. That's our method. Do you see? Our very teaching style assumes that asking questions is good. Our very teaching style instructs children that the best way for them to learn is by bringing questions. And so questions are blessed. And I want to say positively right now to anyone listening that you must not be afraid to ask questions. Not of me or of your elders, children of your parents, especially about things of faith. I welcome them. I invite you to ask questions about the Christian faith. We do not shun questions here. We welcome them. Why? <laughs> well, because didn't you hear? Our God commands us. Now, I do want to add quickly that largely in, in terms of our, our larger culture, my sense is that nobody objects to that about having questions and, and seeking the answers to questions. Where, where I would want to maybe challenge some of my skeptic and unbelieving friends is to say, be, be very careful before you ever say, well, I had questions, but those Christians didn't give me answers. Is that true, or did you just not like the answers? There's a big difference there. So, like, part of the, again, part of the catechism format assumes there are answers. It's not just questions, questions into oblivion forever. And I do want to briefly address a reality that there is an arrogant or, or kind of chest-thumping way to ask a question. So not all questions are created equal. There's a way to ask questions in order to intimidate, right, rather than to seek understanding. If you don't believe me, there are a couple of examples of this in the Bible. Uh, I've just two of them for you real quick. In Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees come to Jesus. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, 
asked him a question to test him. So not not really coming authentically curious and and wondering and, and seeking answers, but trying to trap Jesus. The Gospel of Mark says something similar. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. This was their objective. This was their goal. So there's, there's asking questions, and then there's picking fights disguised as questions. Jesus still answered those questions, by the way, but he did often use the opportunity to expose both the agenda and the foolishness of the one doing the asking. Basically, they would ask the fake question, and then Jesus would reply by answering the hidden assertion underneath it. But you might also think of, and this is not on our slides, but but think of at the end of the Gospel of John, when Peter's getting restored after denying Jesus three times, and Jesus asks him a question. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? And that third time, the text tells us, that third time he asks him, Peter's heart just sinks, right? Now, nobody reading that account would say, well, what's Peter upset about? Jesus is just asking questions. What's the big deal? Right? Well, no. I mean, husbands and wives, if every morning you woke up and your spouse looked at you and said, do you really love me? <laughs> right? At a certain point, you know there's an assertion underneath that question. So I want to acknowledge that. But I also want to say Christians should have a reputation for doing their best to treat questions as questions of good faith until the evidence forces them to do otherwise, yeah? So so questions are good, we should expect them. Again, if we are practicing our faith, this is true of ancient Israel, say it's true uh, true of those under the new covenant as well, that the practice of our faith is gonna provoke questions from observers. Uh, in Deuteronomy, the example is your, your, your son. Why? Well, because your kids observe you the most. Parents, you already know that. So questions are good. We should expect them. So having talked about questions, let's now talk about answers. Let's go back to our text. Uh, verse 20, right? So what's the meaning of the testimonies, statutes, and rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? What is the answer? Let's read it again. Just, just This is the only infallible, inerrant part of the sermon right here. Okay, So here's the answer. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Yahweh showed us signs and wonders and great and grievous against the Egyptians, against Pharaoh, against all his household before our eyes. He brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. Yahweh commanded us all, uh, excuse me, us to do all these statutes to fear Yahweh our God for our good, always, that he might might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God as he has commanded us. Now, this is really remarkable. Let's try to unpack it briefly. This is not quite the answer that I would have expected Moses to tell fathers to give. In this scenario, the Lord says, your, okay, your son's going to hear you talking about me. He's going he's to go around his house <laughs> and he's going to see all my promises, right? He's going to hear about them at the dinner table and you're coming and you're going and you're rising and you're lying down. He's going to see them because they're going to be like a sign on your hand. And he's going to notice them on the doorposts of your house and on the city gates. And so he's going to ask, what does all this mean? 
Why do we do all this stuff, Dad? Why do we live this way? My answer would have been, because God said so. Now, hush. God is holy. We are worms. God has spoken. That settles it. So go back to whatever you were doing. Now, to be sure, that answer is part of the answer. If you look at verse 24. Right? Should be the next one. Yeah. There it is, right? So what's, what's the reason? Because Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes, right? To fear Him and so on. So that, that's part of the answer. Because God said so is part of the answer. But it, there's a lot of answer before we actually get there. Did you notice? You can already see there's a lot more. What have we already covered before we, get to, before we even get to God says so? What have we already covered? We were slaves in Egypt. God brought us out. Just like he promised he would. By miraculous plagues, by his own mighty hand. I have to think that's by the blood of the Passover lamb on our doors. God brought us out and he gave us a home, a promised land, just like he promised us. This is so important. Do you see how? Do you see how? For God's people, the answer to the deepest questions of meaning and theology and doctrine are not simply the reality that God has spoken, verse 24. The fullest answer we give is not simply God said it. The fullest answer is the larger story of what God has done. And you notice what's in the story? Both law and gospel. Go to verse 20, yeah, verse 21. We were slaves in Egypt, okay? Sin, brokenness, abuse, suffering, oppression. Starting with that bad news. Verse 22, God brought us out. Rescue, gospel, salvation. God brought us out with a mighty hand. And you got to know Passover is part of that story. By God's mighty hand and by the blood of the Lamb, He brought us out. Gospel. And then what? Verse 23, He gave us a land. He gave us a home. He built a kingdom in Canaan. He's ruling by the throne of His son David. That's later. Gospel. Verse 24, he commanded us to do all these things and to fear him. That's law. For our good, always, end of verse 24. Why? That he might preserve us life. That's the reason, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Gospel, our Lord has given us life. Verse 25, it will be righteousness for justification for us, gospel, if we are careful to do all he has said, law. Okay? Do you see? Sometimes, part of the problem that sometimes happens in Christian education, Christian discipleship, is that we separate our doctrine, sort of doctrine over here, from our stories. We have, we have answers to theological questions on one side, and we have the biblical story on the other. What would it look like if our story of what God has done and by that I mean biblical narrative and personal testimony. What would it look like if our story was part of our answer to theological questions? This, by the way, is what training in the catechism is meant to do. Yes, it is kind of the doctrine side of things. But that's so that when children and adults hear the stories, they have, something, they have some kind of hook to hang those stories on and understand them. Right? Because your doctrine's always going to go with your stories. 
And so, uh, time, time is going to fail me, but I want you to get this. The answer given to the son's question basically has three parts. If you're, if you're taking notes, this is what I want you to get, okay? The answer given to the son's question basically has three parts. Number one, what God has done, namely, he's delivered us, okay? So, the son asks a question, why do we do this stuff, Dad? Answer part one, because of what God has done, he's delivered us. Answer two, because of what God has said, he's given us commandments. Answer three, because of what he's promised. Did you catch it? It's for our good. For our good. So, that's a, so he's delivered us. That's the story of what God has done. He, here's what he said. That's his commandments. And then, oh, by the way, those commandments, what he's promised, for our good. And I submit to you, that is how you and I should view our calling to answer questions about our ways of life and worship. Here's what God has done, story. Here's what God has said, commandments. Here's what God has promised for our good, okay? And so, the very same questions then, or or at least questions very similar, will confront our children and and our friends and our co-workers and those we know. I mean, just, just, to, just to pick the, the, the fun ones, right? You know, like, why do you Christians talk so much about men being men and women being women, about marriage being only one kind of thing? Why do you Christians talk so much about abortion? Why do you Christians live so differently and insist that it's the way to carry out life? Now, look, sometimes in those situations, for whatever reason, you might only have time for it because God says so. Like it's what God's called us to do, right? So if you have 10 seconds to answer, that's a fine answer. But many times we can give a better answer. And I would submit to you it should look something like this. Why do we live so differently? One, because of what God has done. Part one. Because of what God has done. You see, why do Christians live this way? You know, because we were sinners and rebels and haters of God. And we were trying to live only for ourselves and the stuff that we cared about. And we reduced the creator of the universe to our own personal like bellhop and tried to be God ourselves. And even when we were like that, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to die for our sins, to pay our penalty. And then He rose again and defeated death and the devil. The only two things, by the way, that can actually kill us. That's what God has done. And that same God has called us to follow Him in obedience. And as it turns out, He cares what we do with our bodies. right? Because He made them. And He gave us souls and He tied those things together. right? Body and soul. They're, they're tied together and united and, and created in His image. And we belong to Him and not to ourselves. So as it turns out, what we do with our body, bodies really, really, really matters. And beyond all that, why do we do it? Number three, His commandments are for our good. They are for our good. They are for our good. You you must believe that, Christian. You must. It's the hardest thing, perhaps, to believe when actual suffering shows up. That His commandments are for your good. That this God only commands what actually is good for us. So you see, see, at that point you can say, I don't do stuff just because God says so. I mean, I, I do, but, but no, I, I do stuff 
because, because of the God who says so, right? I don't just do stuff because God says so. I do stuff because God has said so. <laughs> I don't know if you're following me. He only says so when he means to tell me what is best for me, right? And for you, and for our city, and for my neighbors, and for their flourishing. Now, isn't that better than because God said so? I mean, like we, we joke that that answer doesn't satisfy children. Does it satisfy you? I mean, if we're honest, like there are times where like you got to grit your teeth and say, because God said so, I get it. There are, there are times and seasons that call for that kind of grit. But there's a reason that answer long-term doesn't resonate in your heart. Sometimes, again, sometimes you got to speak that way to your heart where you have to say, thus says the Lord, and that'll guard and sustain you while you keep going, yes, but it won't satisfy you long-term. What will satisfy you is the greater answer of, number one, what God has done, He's delivered us. Number two, what God has said, He's given us commandments. Number three, what God has promised, it's for our good. And this is what we do, by the way, when we get together every Sunday morning. It is why gathered corporate worship is, hear me, absolutely essential for your heart and soul. Because when we gather, what we're doing is telling each other the story. We hear His call to worship. We sing of His glory. His glory, uh, and we adore His name. We praise Him. We lift up our hands. And then what? We confess our sins. That's the fall. Then we hear of our forgiveness in the cross and the blood of Jesus. Then we raise our voices in thanksgiving. Then we pray to this great God who's forgiven us. Then we hear from His Word. We receive His body and blood. We sing of our great hope, the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And then we go out with His blessing on our heads, His Word ringing in our ears, his gospel songs shaping and echoing in our hearts. We are in those times doing something of fundamental and formative importance. We are renewing covenant with our God by once more retelling his story in our liturgy, in our prayers, in our preaching, in our song. And so remember these three. What God has done, He's delivered us. What God has said, He's given us these commandments. What God has promised, all of it's for our good. And so this is what the Lord has given to, as it were, equip you with as you come up against questions about, I mean, it could be, I, mean, I, don't, I don't, don't know all of the questions that all of you are facing right now. There are lots of questions right now about human sexuality and the biblical response to those things. There are lots of questions about other people's failures, right? When somebody fails you in life, whether it's a friend, husband, a wife, or you're observing somebody's failure and talking about it, we call that gossip, right? When there's strife in relationships, it tends to do a number on your heart. What do you need in those moments? You need God's story, right? I'm the sinner. I'm the one coming out of Egypt. And notice that. That, that Israel continued to speak that way long after the Exodus. Do, do you understand? That, that 
It didn't matter. 20 generations after the Exodus, Israel was still saying God brought us out of Egypt. Right? And so what do you need in those moments when, when your relationships are broke and not working like they're supposed to? Right? You need the story of your own sinfulness before God. Because otherwise you start to think there's only one sinner in that relationship. What else do you need? You need what God has said Commandments. Lord, you just prayed it. Forgive me my sins only to the extent I forgive others. Oh my God. I'm not blaspheming. It should make you say that. And then third, what God has promised. All of this is for my good. His commandments, for my good, for my good. Questions about suffering, same thing. When you come up against suffering, you need to know the story of what God has done. You need to know His commandments. You need to know that they're for your good. And so this is living in accordance with the story. And it is where a lot of the kind of, uh, what do you want to, the rubber meets the road, if you want to put it that way, of our Christian life. So what I'm saying is the way that we talk about God has to match the way that we live. So, and that, you all know that, but like to, to kind of get inside of it, what I mean is that you can go around all day talking about how we're sinners, right? Oh, I'm a sinner and... I'm such a sinner, I'm a real bad sinner, I'm a worm, I'm such a lousy worm, I'm such a terrible sinner, all the time. Okay, when is the last time you repented to somebody, to their face, and asked for forgiveness? Right? If you can't remember the last time you did that, you don't actually believe the I'm a sinner bit, or that you need help with it anyway. Right? And your children notice that. And so, and your friends notice that. Your family, your coworkers notice that, right? So you can talk all day about how, oh, I'm such a sinner. But if you're not taking that sin into reality and dealing with it in repentance before God and men, then what's all your talk for? Right? So the story has to match with the actions. Right? Or, or here's another one. Like, well, I'm just, you know, I have so much to learn. Really, just God is so big and incomprehensible, and I have so much to learn. I'm just, I, you know, I know this much for all my study, for all my reading. I know but a tiny bit, and that's why I go around treating everybody like they're total idiots, <laughs> and I'm really smart. Right? Wait, you just said, <laughs> no, it's because you don't actually believe that. Right? And so, so again, the stories that you're telling about who God is and what he's done with you and in you and to you have to have to match the actual way it plays out in your life. And so where do we tell God's story? Where do we make sure it's ringing in one another's ears? I've already told you, one place is corporate worship. Another place is worship with your family. And another place is what I call private worship, what some people might call devotional time, private devotions. Why? Because this is the story that rescues us. We were slaves in Egypt. We were without hope apart from His grace. And God means for His people to tell that story to themselves and to each other over and over and over again and to their children. He reveals Himself and His character to us in His Word. Why? Well, so that we can keep re-clarifying things to our own doubtful, fearful hearts about who He is and what He's done. And it is continually going back to the story of what he's done that will, that will give you, and to put it this way, just the, the energy to keep fighting your own sin, right? I said it a few weeks ago. 
that, that what all of our marriages need is the conviction that your sin is the biggest problem in the marriage, right? The actual conviction that like my pride and my sin is like the biggest problem here. Let me, as I start to close, let me offer you this. God gives us things so that we can keep telling his story. From reminders to symbols to sacraments, visual things we can keep. One of, one of the best ones, kind of the image of covenant promise, if you will, that really stands out in Scripture to me is uh, when God makes the covenant with Noah, right? After the flood. After the flood, God promises, I'm, I'm not going to, basically in summary, I'm not going to tit for tat knock out the world according to all of the sins. Because if I did that, right, the, the text even says, uh, uh, the Lord God said that the way of man and his heart was only evil continually. So it's like we are done for <laughs> because only evil continually is what got us in the flood the first time and things have not improved. And so God makes this promise that I'm never again going to flood the earth. And he gives Noah the rainbow. We, we translate it rainbow. Actually, the Hebrew word is literally just bow, B-O-W, as in bow and arrow. It's a war bow. That's what it is. I mean, if you think of a rainbow, it's the bow just without the string, right? So this is, the, this is God's proclamation. He sets a weapon of war in the sky. Which direction is the arrow pointed? Right? Forever reminding us that there's only one way that we're going to be rescued from judgment. That's if God takes the arrow himself. Right? So he puts that in the sky so that every time we look at it, we start telling ourselves the story again. And so, our hope is that we keep on confessing that to ourselves and to each other. What God has done is delivering, delivering us. What God has said, he's given us his commandments. And what God has promised, that all of it's for our good. May this great story be on our lips and the lips of our children today and forevermore. In the name of Jesus. Amen.